0: Welcome to Season 2 of American Political History, The Second Wave, The Plans of Baron Baltimore. Maryland was a planned idea of George Colvert, a retired Secretary of the English Crown. He reached the rank of Secretary of State for King James I. Once retired, Colvert openly reclaimed his Catholicism and turned to creating a safe space within the English world for Catholics. Calvert had received in his retirement the Barony of Baltimore, land, title, and manor in English-controlled Ireland. So he became Baron Baltimore I. For Catholics in England, during Queen Elizabeth's reign, one could not openly practice Catholicism and work within the English court, which is why Baron Baltimore waited until after his career had ended, and during the Catholic-friendly reign of King James, to openly proclaim his beliefs. Baron Baltimore also was a fervent believer in the high middle age nostalgia of a culture of kings and barons and knights and happy loyal peasants. In his mind, it was just a matter of proper planning and proper order, and the old times could be reimagined in the new world. Baron Baltimore had been an early investor in the Virginia Company in 1609 as well as investing in the East India Company. Now that he was retired, Baron Baltimore could oversee his own small settlements in the New World. In 1621, he received a royal charter and invested in a small settlement near Newfoundland, which was called Avalon. Its rough and cold climate made the colony impractical, only reaching a population of around 100 by 1625. Most of the settlers were Protestant, who immediately reported to English authorities the presence of Catholic missionaries in Avalon, who were spreading Catholicism in English lands, which was illegal. So Baron Baltimore took his lessons from Avalon and moved on to the next project. He would have to build a shared Catholic and Protestant society in the mold of Queen Elizabeth's policy. If it was not shared, then any Catholic missions or religious practices would be threatening to Protestants. So instead of trying to build a Catholic-focused settlement, he would now try to build a settlement where both religions were allowed and valued members of the community. He also learned that having missionaries of any type would ease tensions with natives. Missionaries could lay the groundwork for a strong, friendly relationship that over time would eventually lead to the conversions of Indians into Christian society. In 1629, authorities in Virginia, even in their people-starved state, would deny Baltimore's request to build a settlement within the Virginia Territory. Virginia authorities saw this as a clear Catholic settlement and wanted no part of it. Baltimore would spend the last two years of his life lobbying the crown for a new charter north of Virginia. In 1631, his son, Cecilius, would become Baron Baltimore II. Receiving the requested charter a few months after his father's passing. He would make seeing his father's dream of a safe space for Catholics his life's mission. The charter would give 10 to 12 million acres of land in the Maryland colony. And you might be asking, why such a large margin? 10 to 12 million acres? Remember in 1630, maps were vague for Europe, let alone the barely discovered interior lands of North America. The area would be described in the charter with general landmarks. Maryland would be the territory spanning from the Potomac in the south to the 40th parallel in the north. Its borders in the west would be the sources of the Potomac River, and east would be the Atlantic coast. Vague, right? So now you understand, about 10 to 12 million acres. And this charter gave the extraordinary status of Palatine Lord to the Baron Baltimore's. This was unusual but not unheard of in English history. In the 14th century, the lords that received the kingdom of Wales received the status of Palatine lords. This title of Palatine lord shows Baltimore's connections within the English court more than it shows anything else. He was obviously trusted by those around King James and then his son King Charles. And that is because a Palatine lord is granted specific extra powers. They first get total control over the use of lands within their domain. The lord can grant them or take them from any subjects. He has the power to raise army and go to war to defend those lands in any way he chooses. And the tenants of the land, that is, anyone that is not the king of England, are subject to the Palatine lord, who is only the subject to the king of England and all legal writs within the colony would be written in the Lord Palatine's name, not the English king. An impressive set of powers, to say the least, given to no other English colonies in the 17th century. Besides having the obvious trust in Baron Baltimore, the crown also had a strong interest in creating a successful colony to hedge against the expansion of the Dutch New Amsterdam colony. The crown was concerned that if the Dutch colony grew big enough, it would split the English territories of Virginia and New England. Baron Baltimore II then started to sell investments in the Maryland colony, saying it was obvious, sure source of profit for the investors. But by the 1630s, Baron Baltimore faced major roadblocks to overcome in England. First, anti-Catholicism was once again on the rise with the growing strength of Puritans in Parliament. Second, the fact that almost any English poor or middling class person would most likely be Protestant. And the third issue that he would face is that the Virginia Company and its powerful backers saw this additional colony as a direct competitor to their interests. If the Maryland colony, or for that matter anyone, had both the Protestants in Parliament and the London merchants against them, say goodnight to their project. So in 1633, he preempted any attacks of this charter by writing King Charles directly to nullify possible objections. His first point was that an exodus of Catholics from England to Maryland would not frustrate any long term English efforts to convert them to Protestantism, or signal an increase in the Crown's toleration for Catholics. This was foremost to be an English colony, and it would not draw foreign Catholics into their English territory, or lead to the support of separation from the English Crown. His second point is that the Maryland colony would not drain wealth from the crown as Virginia continued to do for two decades. Maryland was clearly planned and going to be doubtlessly successful and therefore return wealth to the crown quickly. And finally, Maryland would be, as King Charles wished it in England, a return to absolutist social structures, a hearkening back to the world in which Christian kingdoms had flourished for centuries, a society of landlords and tenants, nobles and peasants, All under the king. This would be a society of legal privilege and social class, which was the rightful foundational positions of a true and good society. This society would not have new wealth without morals causing unscrupulousness to be rewarded, a.k.a. Jamestown. This would be a colony of devout, godly lords taking their rightful place in a righteous society in the New World. This strategy of a preemptive attack on Baltimore's political opponents in England worked to mollify resistance to the Maryland Charter. Baron Baltimore could now focus on the work of colonizing Maryland. Baron Baltimore would give head rights to those that could bring population. Any qualified man that brought with him five servants would receive head rights to 50 acres for his manor and 10 acres in town. As investors came in, the requirement would be raised to 10 servants for 30 acres. For those gentlemen that brought only themselves and their family, they would get the head rights to 5 acres. And finally, any lone servants wishing to join the colony in honest work would have to come with the good recommendation from a lordly gentleman within England. Virginia had suffered for years because of a lack of moral character. Baron Baltimore said that Virginia had been populated with the scum of the earth, taken up promiscuously the government in maryland would have an assembly composed of men with gentlemanly moral character each freeholder of manorial land getting a voice in that assembly baron baltimore would initially appoint mostly protestant officers to hold the colonial government posts protection against any accusation of bias to and for catholics now that baron baltimore had investors and in a planned social structure he wisely commissioned scouts to go investigate the natives in the area where they planned to settle. And as God fortune would have it, Maryland settled in the middle of the Piscataway Empire of 7,000 people. And the local nation was planning on abandoning the site where he wanted to start his first settlement. That nation was unable to maintain the region for themselves because of continued native hostility toward them in the region. They were in desperate straits, being attacked from the Padawomac Nation in the south. The Padawomac had attacked with the support of Virginia militiamen. The local nation had no ability to defend against this force and had decided to migrate away instead. These hostilities allowed Baron Baltimore to trade a trifle of English axes, cloth, and other basic supplies in exchange for the whole vast territory once held by this nation. The Piscataway Empire also faced hostility from the Iroquois nation to the northwest, making them desperate to form any defensive alliance they could with a new European settlement. So Baltimore sent missionaries with gifts of tribute to the largest of the Piscataway nations, negotiating permission for their settlement and agreeing to a preliminary military arrangement. Clearly, God had favored the settlement of Maryland by having recently increased the tensions between the natives so that Maryland could be in an advantageous position from the very start. And once they started building the settlement, Baltimore would make only friendly overtures to the Virginia colony and Kent Island, which was an unchartered trading post that was nearby, that happened technically to fall within the charter of Maryland. Now that peace was arranged, godly people invested, it was time to turn to the building of this new colony. This would be no random sprawl like Jamestown. It would be planned streets, layered out with defense in mind, Crops planted would be assigned from plantations and controlled for self-sufficiency. Maryland was not going to be another Virginia Company debacle. Or so, the plan was. But the thing about plans is that they all sound wonderful before the rubber meets the road. The Ark and the Dove would voyage with around 200 settlers, and they would found St. Mary's City in 1634. Within a few years, Baltimore started dispersing out manorial rights to lands only to see painfully slow migration of the right kind of people from England. By 1641, there was no established manorial states at all. Limited success in trading furs with natives, the Maryland colony had to compete with both Virginia and Kent Island, which had their own well-established fur trading networks. Planned crop arrangements had failed within months. St. Mary's had quickly become a land of sprawling farms, all-growing tobacco, the only profitable crop. It had only taken a few years, and the dream of this gentlemanly settlement, where each manor lord would have his own park for hunting, happy servants bringing him meat, and all of the noble rights that should have been due to him in England, had ended with the reality of the hardship of settling in this new world. In 1638, Kent Island attacked a Maryland vessel in open waters. Baron Baltimore took this opportunity to seize Kent Island, which was technically after all in his charter. Shortly thereafter, Richard Ingle, a captain of a ship, announced his personal allegiance with the parliamentary cause of the English Civil War. He threatened to personally kill any royalists he found and had a letter marked by Parliament's authority that he, Richard Ingle, was allowed to raid any ship that was loyal to King Charles as the Civil War was raging in England. He took over Kent Island, then mobilized a gang to raid the coastal settlements of the Maryland colony. In response, Maryland mobilized its own defensive militia. But Ingalls' numbers kept increasingly growing, attracting many discontented servants within Maryland, who shared in his vision of striking back at the Catholic rulers. Conditions for Maryland's labor was deteriorating past the worst conditions for peasants in England. This group of pirates raided many English settlements. But then, because pirates are pirates, Ingalls decided to plunder and capture a Dutch colony north of Maryland. After rounding up enough loot for himself, Ingalls set sail for England in 1645. But the gang of discontented rebels continued to raid and plunder Maryland's coastline for months. But the greater harm was the societal damage from this pirating that dug deeper and more divisive any possessions that they took. Class and religious strife that was ripping apart England in its civil war had now been exported to the new world in Maryland. The fighting would be brutal. Catholic and Protestant neighbors fighting each other within Maryland, killing each other. They knew each other. They had just been friends. And it wasn't a happy ending for Ingalls either. His claim of parliamentary permission was a stretch, Parliament had absolutely no interest in a war with the Dutch in the middle of a civil war. English courts ruled that Ingalls must immediately return all Dutch ships and possessions and free any Catholic prisoners he had and all of his loot was declared illegal pirating. But back in Maryland, Governor Calvert had to figure out how to restore this colony. Many militiamen, pirates, had refused to support the colonial government. So Calvert issued a pardon for all of those that would fall back under Baron Baltimore's colonial authority. He then co-opted once rebel leaders into the governmental assembly, then appointed many Protestants to powerful positions to allay fears of growing Catholic support during the Civil War, that Maryland would choose the royalist and Catholic side. Baron Baltimore himself then took two major steps to try to solidify Maryland's place within England and outside of the English Civil War. The first step was that all officers would attest their loyalty to the new English crown, that they were loyal to England, and that they would swear fealty to himself as the colony's rightful Palatine lord. His second step was to issue his Act Concerning Religion. This act was a radical document of religious freedom for its time. The act protected the open worship and belief of Catholicism, It also urged people of different Christian religions to live together in peace under the same government and to avoid using inflammatory terms like heretic, schismatic, idolater, Puritan, Presbyterian, Popish priest, papist, Lutheran, Calvinist, separatist, or any other term that could cause religious offence. But this act was not full religious freedom. Maryland would continue to have typical English law that punished denying Christianity with the death penalty. This act was a pragmatic effort to help different Christian groups live together in peace in Maryland. But by 1649, an angry parliament that had lost their profits from Kent Island's fur trade because Maryland had seized it, dismantled the Maryland assembly, appointed Puritans to high positions within the colony, and revoked the act concerning religion, disenfranchising all Catholics within the colony and denying them freedom to openly worship. This resulted in more violent unrest the English Civil War had truly come to Maryland. In 1655, Protestant and Catholic militias would battle near St. Mary's City. The Catholic militia got beaten, and when they surrendered on the promise of quarter from the Protestant forces, quarter being imprisonment for a term rather than torture and enslavement or execution, the Protestant militia leaders would accept this quartered term of surrender, then it would execute ten leaders of the Catholic militia and the Catholic priest, And then other members of the Catholic militia were only saved by the pleading of local women begging at their feet for their lives. So instead of execution, the Protestant militia seized all of the captured men's property, dooming them to the only option of putting themselves up as indentured labor and to have their contracts sold to local lords. But by 1657, Baltimore's claim had been restored in Cromwell's Protectorate England. And this overall time of piracy and civil war within Maryland would become known as the plundering time. The overall condition of the Maryland colony at the end of the plundering time was decimation. Baltimore's dream of an orderly society was completely destroyed. The only plantations that did survive were ordinary tobacco farms, indistinguishable from plantations in Virginia. Maryland had become another cash-and-labor-strapped English colony subject to any fluctuation in the world's tobacco markets. And Maryland was now totally reliant on whoever they could get for labor, directly competing with Virginia for those scum of the earth and taking them up promiscuously. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating. And share this show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again, and until next time.